Now, uh, I'm going into the unknown land here. Um, I went away uh, working with RTE to uh, Brussels and then to Belfast. Uh, but you never really go away. Uh, so I'm glad to be back. But Niall Delaney stayed. Uh, and I can tell you about Niall that many's the time RTE and others tried to recruit him uh, because he can take his place on any stage. Uh, but he has the kind of sense that said, had him decide that he, wants, he wanted to stay here um, and that this is his community, this is his workplace, uh, and this is where he's happiest. And uh, I think in Ocean, he does a magnificent job binding together the community. So it's my privilege to introduce you to Niall Delaney, and I'll field whatever questions he throws at me. Thank you. Uh, I've, I've just spent 20 minutes with uh, Tommy's brother, uh, Michael, in the green room. He, he's a more interesting story than you to tell, Tommy, I tell you. There, 100%. There's, there's a book and a half in Michael, at, at the very least. And ladies and gentlemen, I think the first thing I want to say just before we start is uh, to acknowledge the fact that we're sitting here in the presence of a legend. Um, it's often the case, I think, that we don't realise people are legends until they're gone. Uh, Tommy is somebody in the journalism profession that many of us have looked up throughout our careers. And I know while the late, great John Healy was a role model for you, Tommy, Tommy in turn has been a role model for many, many of us in journalism. So I think we should keep that in mind. And first of all, to acknowledge one of our own, Tommy Gorman. Thank you. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll start, just a general observation, uh, Tommy, from knowing you and from reading the book, which is quite magnificent, you seem to be a very uncynical person, uh, an optimist at heart, and an emotional person. How the hell are you in journalism? <laughs> because these are not traits that you would associate with people in the profession. Uh, I don't think that at all. I think... Most people in journalism are idealistic. Uh, I think they believe in things. Uh, I think sometimes they get caught up in the swirl. Um, I'm watching it at the moment in relation to politics in Britain, yeah. uh, where people are so keen to get the next soundbite or the next element of the story that maybe they're losing sight of the bigger picture of what's really going on. But um, I wouldn't change a day of, um, of the life I had. Uh, You're from I, I, Snipegrass, isn't that right? Yeah, that was Explain a phrase. Explain to people what that is. Yeah, that, that, that was a phrase that uh, John Healy used when um, I was in the School of Journalism in, in Rathmines, and uh, it was a two-year course. And uh, in the second year, we heard that this fellow John Healy was looking to start a new newspaper uh, called the Western Journal and it was mainly based in Ballina. It was a bit of a grudge match with the Western people because he and Jim Maguire had been with the Western people and had fallen out. So he was looking to recruit uh, young reporters, so I thought anyway. And uh, I went up to be interviewed by, by him in his house in Fortfield Terrace in Rathmines. And Healy was a, he was a legend. Uh, Healy was the person who really invented a form of political journalism. He was the fellow who cycled on his bicycle from Charlestown to Ballina and sort of forced uh, the De Veres to give him a job as a young fella. He had just done the intercert, I think, at that stage, and he wasn't, didn't want to go back to St. Nathie's. So Healy worked his way up through provincial journalism, up to national journalism. He used to write in the Irish Times, and uh, he was a great man for telling it as it was about politics. And inventing phrases and using accurate language to describe situations. Uh, but he was very grounded. And anyway, he, he was looking at me and I was trying to make an impression on him. And I had a pair of trousers on. And um, there was a very neat little patch in the trousers that my grandmother had darned. 
So he just looked across at me and he said, um, you had a patch in your trousers, kid. Who did that? So I said, it was my grandmother. Um, she came from Leitrim and her husband died and left her with seven children. And she used to have a sewing machine. Uh, and that was one of the ways she generated money. And she could make a, a shirt out of meal bags. So Healy listened intently and um, he identified with it. And he just said to me, you're from Snipegrass, son. Uh, I liked that. Yeah, he liked so that. So the hole in the trousers that, helped, that, to, that, helped to get me the job. That stood to you. you you've, as people will, will hear, in particular in the Hawks, will know you've been a fantastic ambassador for Sligo uh, for many years, no matter where you've been, in Europe or in Northern Ireland, wherever. And you told me before to quote you in a previous interview, um, talking about Sligo, you say, I love the understated ways of its people, the accent, the wit not to mention the landscape. It's a very special place to you, Tommy, and always has been. I'd say, like, Bruce Springsteen has this view about hometown. I'd say it's the same for everybody, mm. or for most people, that your hometown, particularly if the experiences in your childhood are positive uh, and happy, um, your hometown becomes the place where you want to come back to, where a, a lot of you is shaped. Uh, and I do, I love... I love Sligo's size, for a start. Mm. Um, you know, is it, we say it's 20,000 or 30,000 people, but an awful lot of us know each other, um, and that's great for a start. But then the landscape, I think, I think the landscape influences you, Niall. Mm. I think. But did, did you miss it when you spent all those years in, in Brussels and Strasbourg and in Belfast? Did you miss home at all? Oh, like... I was always conscious of it. You never go, I never thought for a minute that we weren't going to return. And like, we always kept the roots here. Um, I could never, I could never emigrate to Australia mm. uh, and say that I wasn't going to come back. I couldn't go anywhere like that. Like the draw of here is, is, is too much. Um, we live out at Lachine. Uh, we bought the house in 1984. And uh, I remember, Mummy been out in the house one day and she just looked out at the field and you could see the old ruin Elishine house and you can see the Atlantic beyond and of course Knocknarays across the way and she said to me, Don't ever leave it. Mm. Uh, that she had, you know, that she had that love of place as well. Yeah. To give us a sense of that, and I was talking to to someone you know well outside beforehand, to give us a sense of that local wit you talk about and you love so much and you're among your own here. Will you tell us the story about Tessie Jinx and Shoot the Crows. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's a great story. Uh, I, I see my good pal Eric Ford in the front row, and Eric and Martin, Lord Reston, would know these stories, they'd know this Sligo wit. So Nina O'Brien was our family friend, and um, Nina had the news agents in Grattan Street. And it was coming up to Christmas and it was getting very busy and of course all the supplies were coming in and Nina was preparing the different things and getting the Christmas wear ready. She had the best sales I think of Family Circle in, in Sligo as well and that was, she had the newspapers and sweets but she also had the gifts. So she was there and she was beginning to get a bit stressed with Christmas coming up. So Mrs Jinx was such a busy woman, always on the go but she was in with her and uh, getting a family circle line. And Nina said to her, Christmas, Christmas? What do you think of Christmas, Mrs. Jinx? Uh, do you like it? So Tessie looked at her and immediately, didn't have to think about it, she said, well, the way it is with us, Miss O'Brien, we have Christmas every Friday night in shoots. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, that story that she was telling was in Shoot the Crows, Gilmartin's. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, it would be sometimes known as the Opera House on a Friday night be because of the singing that took place. So Tessie was referring, and she was a good singer as well as everything else, she was referring to the singing that took place in Shoots. Uh, I, I want to say you, to you in a personal note, Tommy, that there, there, there have been two occasions that I can remember where I said to myself, Christ, I want that job and I want to be doing what Tommy Gorman is doing. And it's maybe not the, the stories that people would remember like Roy Keane or, or Prince Charles visiting. The first one was, and 
many of us will remember when Podrick Flynn appeared on the Late Late Show in 1999 and uh, made the, the reference to how difficult it was to keep three houses on the go <laughs> as European Commissioner and then the subsequent controversy over whether money had been paid to politicians by Tom Gilmartin. You followed and challenged Podrick Flynn. Do you remember that? In a room or a corridor in Brussels the following week with a cameraman and ran into the lift after him to have it abruptly closed behind you. Yeah, and I'm going to surprise you with this, uh, this response, I'd say. Um, Flynn was all those things, that he could be a galoot in public, larger than life, uh, all that, there was a lot of questionable activity around that whole Tom Gilmartin affair, and of course, Tom Gilmartin had very strong Sligo roots, yeah. uh, linked to Grange, um, and he was a very good man. So I remember that night watching Porrick Flynn on the Late Late Show when he talked about the, you should try it sometime, you know, the three houses. Yeah. Uh, and it was absolute car crash television. Uh, and he's remembered for it in the same way as he's remembered for his comments about Mary Robinson's new interest in yeah. family and how that mm -hmm. actually probably helped to get her elected as a president. Uh, so when he came on the Monday back to Brussels and all this was swirling, it was my job really to pursue him and to ask him. And I knew Porrick Flynn from work and he was a good contact, good source of news, but it was my job to pursue him. And yeah, he was going into the lift and I was asking him a question. And the cameraman kept the shot rolling and the doors closed over and the lift disappeared. And it was, it was box office television. It was. It was very powerful. Uh, but but, but I, here, I, here's the other side to Porrick Flynn. This is what I want to tell you. Yeah. Um, when I got sick in, in 1994, uh, Porrick Flynn came to visit the house. Came at lunchtime. Out in the big Mercedes. Um, and we had a narrow drive where we were living in Rickson's and I think the driver actually scraped the car as he was coming down the drive. <laughs> so he comes in anyway into the house, and it was lunchtime. And uh, Kira was there, and Moya was very young. Moya was 10 months. Uh, and I was there in a dressing gown, and I was quite thin. Uh, so Flynn was there, and he was, you know, filled the room as usual, standing up, you know, impatient, you know, out during his lunch break. So then he says, um, well, what did I find in you? Uh, so when I told him uh, that they had discovered cancer and that I had some secondaries on my liver, it was the one time that I saw Flynn absolutely stuck to the floor. His mouth just dropped and he looked at me and you could see him scanning the room and he looks over and he saw Kira with the young baby. He saw me thin in a dressing gown. And what he said then, immediately, I think was his spontaneous self. Another side of Flynn that can't be forgotten in the overall assessment of him. He said, well, get the best treatment possible. And don't ever be stuck for money, because as long as Flynn has it, you're welcome to it. So that's just another side. And he meant I, I'd it. never have taken the yeah, money, obviously. Yeah. Uh, and you'd, you know, you'd wonder about the money itself, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. No, 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 I, I don't but, say that in it. Like, you'd yeah. have to wonder about it. But the offer was 100% was yeah, genuine. Okay. Well, we, we'll come to the cancer diagnosis and your ongoing treatment of that very, very shortly. But the second time, which was earlier in your career, that I thought I want your job was um, back in 1983. Uh, after watching the homecoming report when Sligo Rovers had won the FAI Cup for the first time ever. Um, I think the report was on a, was on a nationwide type program, no, as I remember. No, was it, not? It, it was on Ireland's Eye. Okay. I know the one you're Ireland's thinking Eye. Okay, well, yeah. we, have, we have a clip. Just have a quick listen to this. Festivities had an early lift-off. By mid-morning, packed pubs in Sligo were showing videos of the match. The banks were doing likewise, and spirits were so high, recession became a redundant word. I'm overwhelmed with the way Sligo Rovers came back in that second half. And I'm delighted! This man is overwhelmed today. I know that a father of Tony Fagan. And he's overwhelmed here today. There was a lot of people overwhelmed that day, Tommy, as you well remember. Yeah, I can see it. They, uh... 
The producer was an Australian called John Blackman. It was for a program called Ireland's Eye. And I'll never forget those scenes in Cahanis. Yeah. That's Thunder Dunleavy. And Thunder, for a long time afterwards, was known as Overwhelmed. Uh, yeah. uh, because uh, Thunder was going around. And that was one of the, the brilliant things about RTE, that you got the chance sometimes to put the local into the national space. Yeah. I remember we did a thing once about Johnny McNiff and the horses. Johnny used to have horses down in Emmett Place. And we got pictures of them to the black uh, beauty music, John Blackman again, slow-mo going over uh, Coney Island, uh, to, to Coney Island. But one final little part of that uh, overwhelmed story, Anne Cahaney will confirm this. Yeah, and, uh, and before you do, you wrote, I wrote an article about this many, many years ago in the Sligo Champion, because I know what you're going to say. Uh, I don't know why I wrote about it, but I wrote about it, and Tommy sent me a handwritten letter a few days later giving me the full story, because I didn't know it was Cahaney's pub, but I know what you're going to say. Tell them okay, well, what happened or what was found yeah, in subsequent days. Uh, Anne was, she had a great night that night, you know. I'd say, I'd say that it was slightly later than normal closing time when they finished up, but uh, when they were tidying up, they found somebody's dentures. <laughs> yeah. Somebody who was obviously overwhelmed. Yeah. I, I mentioned just those two stories because uh, you miss that, Tommy, still, do you? There's a part in the book where you talk about still having, I don't know if they're dreams or nightmares, about still working for RT and still covering the stories. Oh, oh yeah, like, um, you think you're prepared for something, uh, and I thought I was prepared for retirement, but it was... I, I'm sure this is the phenomenon that most people who retire experience. I was no more prepared for it than the man in the moon. Um, mm. I just didn't want to stop working. And I, you sort of, you balance it out. I had to, 65, it, it started the way the things were structured. I wasn't on a contract, I was a member of the staff. And it's, it's so right that other people are entitled to their time in the orchard. But I personally, for all the logic and fairness of that, I wasn't prepared for it. Mm. And I are think you it, Are you a little bit bitter about that, that you oh had to God, no. stand aside? No, 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 no. No, I don't do bitterness. Bitterness just eats you up. Um, it, it, you sort of, th this is how life happens sometimes. So you, you try and respond to the situation. So I yeah. think, Niall, that the book came out of that yeah. determination. And like, I'm, I'm never going to retire from life. You know, yeah. I'm just going to keep going. I think, I think, uh, I think that's, that's very, very, very clear uh, in the book. I've I got to put something to you, Tommy, having read the book, and maybe I'm reading this particular uh, analysis all wrong, because I, I, I think it's fair to say we could carve your professional career into four parts. Your time as a newspaper journalist with the Western Journal and Sligo Journal, then your time as the Northwest uh, correspondent with RTE, your time in Brussels as European correspondent, European editor, and then finally your time as RTE's Northern editor. And my sense, and maybe I'm completely incorrect, is that your time in Brussels was your favourite job. Um, it was a dream job, mm. um, you know, for someone who hadn't finished their exams in the School of Journalism, was from the Northwest, uh, had campsite French, um, that I found myself, you know, reporting on uh, international events and trusted. And like I was terrified when I went there first yeah. uh, because I was very conscious of the depth of my ignorance, how little I understood uh, and how, you know, unfit I was. So the only way you can try and cope in a situation like that is you, you work and you just work and work and work. And fortunately, Kira didn't mind me working like that. And then it just be, it became a dream job because the story was wonderful in so many different directions and there were endless stories. But I don't, I don't think it, it would summarize it fully to say that it was a dream job because I felt one added to, to the next and, you know, you were using that knowledge. And, like, I actually, I loved, I got very fond of Northern Ireland. I got very yeah. fond of the Nordies. I got very fond of what's going on in the island. Uh, and I, I just... 
have such gratitude that we're no longer killing each other. Uh, yeah. And that's where I get, I think, that's where I get the enthusiasm from well, life from, there, where I see what people there's can a great, do. There's a great quote in your book where you say that the killing has been overtaken by a scratchy politics, I think you said. Yeah. That? Yeah. I, I, a I scratchy, think, imperfect politics. Yeah. I think, I think the people in the assembly get a very bad press. Um, when you, another way of looking at it is that all that tension that was on the streets at so many levels, that we've sort of boxed it up and we've put it into this place called the Stormont Assembly. Yeah. Uh, and we've said to them, now here's a, a model that isn't in place anywhere else. It's a grand coalition. And we know you've been knocking lumps out of each other for generations, but we expect you to make this work perfectly. Um, so I have, um, and I think it was one of the ways that I managed to be able to survive and to report there yeah. uh, and to get energy back from it, I have admiration for them. And that includes people across the spectrum, every political party. Um, something just struck me because I was uh, tweeting this morning about the fact that I was interviewing you and I had a text on my phone within minutes to say, whatever you do, don't let Gorman off the hook about his political career. <laughs> they had inside information, they reckon that uh, that's the next step. Never. You can absolutely a million percent... Were you ever approached or uh, had, had you ever an interest? I you? wouldn't be suitable for it. Um, Why not? Because it's, 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 a different, it's a different skill set. Like, I, I admire politicians. I'm not cynical about them at all. I've met very few corrupt ones. Um, I, I think you need to have just energy and resilience and you need to have a hard neck and you need to have tough skin and <laughs> the way that every few years you have to put yourself before the general public again yeah i, I it's i, I wouldn't be uh, suited to it and i wouldn't be worthy of it you only answer half the question wherever you're, were you ever approached <laughs> uh i wouldn't say sort of formally directly thanks for that word over there uh but any, any time I'd, anyone would start a conversation like this train of thought you're following, yeah. I, I convinced them pretty quickly that I'd be useless at it and I would have no interest in it. Um, I'm, I'm not adopting any chronological approach to the interview, Tommy, in terms of, of the book, um, but I think it's interesting in your book that you start with family and you more or less end with family. Um, so after all you've achieved in your career, which has been momentous, is that what you're most proud of? Your family. Um, it's what I'm most conscious of. Um, the tie I have. This is my cousin from Sunderland. Came over for today, so she brought this to me. Um, that's Pauline. So she's the daughter of one of my uncles, uh, Paddy, who went from uh, Drum Cairn uh, to Leitrim. Um, he worked in Lego until he was 87. In Lego? In Lego, yeah. Uh, in Lego or with Lego? In, in Lego. Lego. In, in Legoland in, uh, in Windsor. The final job he had, he just loved work. The final job he had was, um, he'd just go around checking the toilets were clean, making sure if somebody had lost a yeah. piece of property or a child was you know, gone missing or something. He just loved being of service. So that's sort of, they're the kind of family values I had on my father's side and on my mother's side. And I have lots of our Leitrim and, and Sligo cousins here today. And uh, we're like, sure, life really is. It's the same for every one of us in this yeah. room. It's the same for everyone. Family is where it begins and ends. Now, Michael spoke very passionately about your parents earlier. And you've obviously got very, very happy memories of childhood, Tommy. Uh, but there were tough times for your family, as you outline in the book. And I don't know if it's fair of me or not to, to pick out one paragraph in the book. Um, and Please do. You, like, when, there's no, when, no censorship when I, here. When I, read, ahead. when I read the paragraph, I had to reread it again because I was misunderstanding it. Um, and the scenario, for those who haven't read the book, is Tommy is, is a young enough child. You're returning home from a day out in Drummer here, visiting, visiting your aunt. You were driving home with your parents. And you say to quote you in relation to your father, sometimes he would slow the car at a section of road close to Loch Gill and say, that's where your mother took me from the water when I tried to do away with myself. 
That's a very, very powerful image and statement, Tommy. Yeah. Um, and it must have had a very deep effect on you. No, uh, like, you always have to, if you're asking people questions, as you do in, in our trade, you have to sort of kind of attempt to be truthful to yourself. Um, and uh, when Daddy would say that, I, I never got to the, the full, to the bottom of it, but I, I know the place on the road, uh, and it was obviously a, at a time when uh, the cattle business had, had gone, really, uh, and where he had managed uh, to, the very brief period that he drank, he couldn't drink properly, because mm. if I couldn't drink to, in moderation, so he had stopped drinking, uh, but then he had TB, and in the time that Daddy had TB, the treatment was very, very severe. So I suppose there was a lot of woundedness, and he was, he was broken in many ways. And we had gone from being, you know, this family that had lots of money to struggling. And um, Mammy always sort of brushed over and said, oh, don't, be, don't be talking about that, that's nonsense. And on we went. But I think it just was uh, me giving an account of the depth of the love between them and how close they were. And I just felt I should put that in. Another thing I put in, and, and I felt I had to do this too. Uh, Daddy's last job was um, as a petrol pump attendant uh, with Porrick Brandley. Yeah. And uh, he, uh, it was there on Millcoach Road, what was later McCormack's, you know, up above Alfie Breeze, opposite Ancanny's. Yeah. And of course, when you're 15 or, or 16, you know, you're impressionable. And um, we'd be going down to Hops and Discos. I'd go down, Austin Jennings is here. And I was kind of ashamed about our vulnerability. Uh, so instead of going down that way, I deliberately have it that when I was with my friends, that we'd go down uh, Pierce Road, down by McSharry's, uh, that I didn't want my friends to see you know, how vulnerable we were. And I'm kind of ashamed of that side of me uh, now, but I want to sort of confront it and put it out there because the hero in this was my father, who would do anything to put food on the table and think nothing of it. And you go on to say in the book, um, to quote you, that you're becoming your father the older you get, you feel. Yeah. In ways. Uh, I, I'd like to become him. Um, tell you one thing he did towards the end of his life. He liked going to funerals. Is, uh, is, that, is, that, is that how you're taking after him then, Tom? No. Uh, yeah, yeah, in the sense that he, he thought it was important to acknowledge people and he was connecting with people. Yeah. Um, I found myself on, on Thursday. Um, I went up to Guidor. Uh, because when I was in Summerhill, yeah. uh, I was at school with uh, Paul Brennan and Moya was in the Earthline and fancy dear to her younger sister in the Earthline. It came to nothing. Does Kira know that? Uh, she was. <laughs> uh, it, it was all innocent stuff. But um, their two uncles were in Clonad as well. And I remembered Clonad starting off. Uh, and I remember Paul in Summerhill giving me their first record and signing it. I still have it. Yeah. Uh, about 1973. And uh, then I saw Clonard take off, and um, Noel Duggan uh, died on a Saturday night, out with friends, got a heart attack. So I was up in uh, Guidor on, on the Thursday for the funeral in, in, in Derry Beg, and I was so glad uh, to make the journey, yeah. just to be among them, because as time passes, I think one of the great traditions we have in Ireland is, is the funeral. Yeah. Um, I was at a funeral in Ransborough two weeks ago, and I was glad I was there too. And, you know, I think this is a point worth making. I was really struck by when the Queen died. Like generally, the British are useless at mourning. You know, it might be five weeks or six weeks before the funeral takes place, and people just don't go. But yeah. I found that it was kind of cathartic 
the respect that was shown for the Queen by the outbreak of the outburst of, of empathy and mourning from, from the British people. And I think we felt that here too. Yeah. And I felt it was very, very healthy. It's interesting you should you mention the, the, the funeral connection because, it, and we'll come to it later on hopefully, it does seem to me that a lot of your personal connections with the, the big names in Northern politics uh, were helped by attendance at family funerals and family occasions, particularly one in relation to Arlene Foster's dad, I think, who died. I'll come to that uh, very, very shortly. But talking about family before we move on, uh, there's Paula, your baby sister. Uh, you mightn't thank me for playing this, um, but I think we have a little piece of audio that we can play now, which you know has a special meaning for you, Tommy. Father, would it be me if you believe in me without your love? It's a honky-tonk parade without your love. It's a melody played in a penny arcade. It's a Barnum and Bailey world, just as crazy as it can be. But it wouldn't be make-believe. If you believe in me. Woo! Yeah! Yeah! yeah. 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 yeah that, was my, uh, that was my 60th birthday. You're, you're, you're digging deep here. Uh, you're, you're going, you're burrowing into the soul. That was the last time we were together uh, in uh, April um, 2016. Uh, and that was Paula singing in our house out at Lachine. Uh, Kira had just organised a, a gathering for our small family circle, and Paula was in flying form. She ran, um, she ran the centre in Cranmore, and she loved her work. Um, she was just a star turn, and um, she lived down in Maharao, and uh, every November. It was open season for all the kids when she poisoned them all with sweets at the party she had. <laughs> My sister Mary came down and uh, she loved life and uh, she died uh, suddenly, uh, uh, three weeks after that, one Sunday afternoon. And um, it takes a while yeah. to get over grief, but you know, you feel her presence now and she's back with us. So leave it at that. I'm going to the audience in a moment because I know you agree with me that we want a bit of interaction, a few questions from the people who have come along here this afternoon. Let's get to Roy Keane. Uh, <laughs> we could spend hours and hours and hours talking about uh, the Roy Keane interview back in 2002. You weren't meant to do the interview, Tommy, isn't that right? Well, it wasn't that I wasn't meant. I was sent because Brian O'Connell was on holidays and it was a news editor in RTE, uh, Ray Burke, and the head of news at Edmund Hall knew my interest in sport and yeah. I was in Belfast and I knew I could get over. Um, rather than labour the point about Keane, I think what the fascination for all of us is that we're all conscious of that it was a missed opportunity. Yeah. And what makes it kind of profound is it's a reminder of how bad things sometimes happen, and the nature of tragedy is you can see it unfolding before your eyes, but you still can't reverse it. Uh, I think it was such a waste. I think Ireland could have done better with Keane. I think he's a magnificent yeah. athlete. And you sense since that, uh, on reflection, you think he absolutely wanted to play in the World Cup? A part of him did. A mm. big part of him was conscious it was his last time. Yeah. Uh, but there was another part of him that was offended and hurt and angry, and Keane gets angry. Uh, but like, I, every time I see Keane, uh, now as a pundit, I'm just so conscious of, he's just got star quality. Yeah. Um, Was it difficult not to get emotionally involved in that story? Because everybody, as we know, not just those who have an interest in sport, had an opinion on it. They were either for McCarthy or for Keane. Was it, was it difficult to stay neutral and objective when you flew over to Manchester to um, the interview? I don't think those terms work like neutral, objective, emotional. Uh, I think like everybody in Ireland, I wanted it sorted. I wanted him back. Um, but my job was to sort of probe him to try and see his side of the story and see what were the possibilities of him returning. Um, the 
best part of the whole experience was I got to know Michael Kennedy, who was his agent. Yeah. And um, he was just... Silk, a, I think you've described Michael Kennedy, is that it? Yeah, he's, he's a gorgeous man. Um, he died suddenly during COVID. Uh, but he was, he was wonderful, a lovely, trust, trusting kind of a person uh, with, with great instincts. Can I quote from Roy Keane's autobiography, uh, ghosted by Eamon Dunphy, as far as I remember? Uh, and Dunphy says, in relation to that time when you were heading to Manchester to interview Roy Keane, so Roy said to Dunphy, Roy said, there's a guy called Tommy Gorman outside the gate. What's he like? I said, Tommy's a good bloke. He's a news reporter. He won't mess you around. And then it goes on later on. Keane rang Dunphy back to say, I got another call from, from Keane. He said, F you, Dunphy. I thought you said that guy was all right. If he's the good guy, what are the bad guys like? <laughs> but that was a tribute to the, the way you carried out the interview and how... No, I think as well as writing... Um biographies. Eamon uh, Dunphy might have skills in fiction as well. <laughs> right. <laughs> we, we leave that one there. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, hope he, I hope he's not listening. Um, your cancer treatment and your documentation of that um, on RT particularly is well known, which is a very brave thing to do at the time. Europe, Cancer and Me, I think the programme was called. It is sobering to think, Tommy, that you were only 37 uh, when you were first diagnosed with cancer. And to this day, you still have these NETs, neuroendocrine tumours. Um, how are you doing in I'm, general? How are you I'm, progressing? I'm, I'm alive. Uh, so that's all that matters. I have a, yeah. a condition that's managed, but you know that point I was making about the local uh, and the big picture, like were it not for me covering a case in the court of justice where I found about how you can access international treatment if it's not available in your own country, yeah. I'd be dead. Uh, had I not met Frank Gannon from Sligo in a bar in Budapest, um, you know, Joe Gannon's brother, um, and Frank telling me, you need to follow up on this condition, you're taking it too lightly. I'd be dead. Uh, did I not know Donald O'Shea and Tom Daly in the Northwestern Health Board, who were willing to be the first people to sign a form like this? I'd be dead. And did I not know Peter Morrison, who had carried out hernia surgery on me a few years before, and had Peter not been willing to step outside uh, the norm, uh, and go against, say, the advice of a lot of his fellow consultants and say, okay, we might not have all the answers in Ireland. If mm. Peter hadn't been so brave, I'd be dead. So that's part of my story as well. Yeah, and I, what I found interesting about that story in the book was there was a certain amount of criticism of your decision to do that, not least from uh, well-known consultants, medical professionals in Ireland which I'm sure hurt you to a certain degree at the time. Well, it was kind of understandable. Like, in order to try and deal with the problem, you have to try and understand it first. And in some ways, I was challenging the idea that we're not masters of the universe on everything. Uh, but I was also very conscious of my rights as a European citizen. And most of all, I was driven by the desire to stay alive. Now, the great thing about it is that since then, there is a steady flow of people traveling abroad, and yeah. the Irish Health Service recognizes it. There's a, there's a unit set up based in Kilkenny that helps patients. Uh, and one thing I'd say, and I hope it comes across in the book, I'd say to any person who's on a waiting list and who has a medical card and who doesn't have private insurance, there are ways where you can access your entitlement to travel to another European member state to get the treatment you need, whether that's for heart surgery, a knee that's giving you trouble, a hip that's causing you bother, and lots of other treatments as well. There are mechanisms, and I think it's one of the, one of the secrets uh, that should be shared with people more and more. 
um, are you a religious man, Tommy? And I ask you for a specific, for, for two reasons, actually. Because when you were undergoing cancer treatment at one stage in, in a hospital in Belgium, uh, you write about uh, the solace you got from going into a prayer room, small prayer room in that hospital. And you say in the book, several times since when trouble came knocking, I've searched for and found the sense of inner peace I first experienced in the prayer room of that Belgian hospital. Uh, the second has to do with your son, Joe, who's here today, and I was talking to him outside briefly. And it is actually my favorite piece in the whole book. Um, well, maybe you tell the story. You, no, were, dri you, you, were, driving, you, you were driving one day around Sligo, home, I think, from a Brussels or wherever no. you were from. Joe was only a young lad in the car, and he was singing Postman Pat. You turned that into a poem. For, for what reason will you tell people? Um, well, uh, when, just when I heard him singing um, in that clear voice, um, it just reminded me that he's named after my father. Uh, and I just felt <clears throat> the sense of continuity. I felt that part of my father was alive in my son. And I think a lot of people will identify with that. The way we, as you say, you become your father after a while. The way when you start relating to your children, you start understanding how your parents related to you. It's sort of, it's, there's that continuum uh, that you become conscious of that as time passes. As to whether I'm religious, I'd say, say this, and it's not conclusive. I'd say the code works for me. I like Christian principles. I think they make sense for ordering society of doing no harm to people. Do, do a person a good turn if you can. Yeah. Uh, but sort of, and then avoid excesses if you can. Um, I was at Mass uh, this morning uh, in Ransborough, uh, and it reminded me of Michael and a thing he said to me once. He said that part of the attraction of, of ceremony is it puts us in touch with our past. You know, I can almost feel myself going with my grandmother and daddy in the car to Mass in St. Anne's when I go to Mass. Yeah. Um, I fear, I think, it's, I think it's a really tough station at the moment to be uh, a priest or, or a nun, um, where you see the dwindling attendances. I think it's a lonely station, um, and uh, I think that's sometimes not fully appreciated. Uh, and I'm very thankful that there are people who have that dedication also conscious of, you know, I reported on them at times of, you know, where formal religion went wrong and the way power was used and abused. And we had lots of examples of mm. it not too far away from us in this town. Uh, but I'm not sort of um, attached to it in the hope that there's something on the far side. But the inner peace you talk about that you found in that hospital, does that come with... Yeah, yeah. That Your mask going, or is it, is it no, entirely it, unrelated it, to that? It comes from the code and the values, and the sense that no one gets out of here alive, but that part of us sort of remains, in the sense that I can feel my parents, I can feel my sister, I can feel yeah. people who have passed. Uh, but um, at that funeral I was at in Gidor the other day, the song they played uh, as Noel Duggan's uh, remains were... Uh, being carried out was uh, the people disappear or the people go away but the mountains remain yeah. and for me the mountains that remain are the sense of you know the sense of, of the past you know and of the people from the past an intergenerational thing I'm going to try, throw some quick-fire questions at you now okay. no time to think about these at all first thing comes into your head and then we'll go to the audience maybe they can uh, throw a few more queries at you. Um, most impressive person you've ever ever interviewed? Oh. Um, generally, there'd be people who can forgive or who can deal with crisis. There would be people who were victims of the troubles. Yeah. Um, you know, I think of the man who was uh, taken out and out of a bus and all his friends were shot and he survived, even though they tried to kill him. I think of my next door neighbor uh, in Belfast, Paul Connolly, who's had relations up in Tonafobble. His mother 
Breach. Connolly was one of the people shot in the Valley Murphy massacre, as it's called, out looking for her seven children. The dignity of such people, you know, yeah. of the little people is... They're the ones you remember they're, most. They're the most lasting impressions. And as opposed to that, the most difficult person you've ever interviewed, and why? Um, Sean Quinn I found difficult. Um, I got an interview with him once, Tony McLaughlin set it up early in Sean's career when he was on the way up. Yeah. And he was really, really open. And um, when things began to fall apart, uh, I, I went back to interview him. And I don't think he was telling me the truth. Uh, I don't think he was able to tell me the truth. There was so much going on. Mm. And I found it hard that although I was playing the role of interviewer and he was the interviewee, that I just wasn't going to get into the truth. And that was difficult. That was impossible. Um, the story which most affected you for whatever reason, be it for a good reason or a bad reason, what pops to mind? Uh, killing. Um, taking a life. Um, and just when bad things happen to good people, um, we all know those images of Mullockmore. I saw those repeated so many times. I saw the impact of it. I remember a lovely woman, Marie McConaughey. No one would know who she was, but I remember her son died when he was out playing in his first communion outfit on a Sunday in Derry and they hadn't much money. And there was a plastic bullet lodged in his eye socket. Uh, and I remember her account of staying beside him um, and, and him being dead. We were just talking earlier today about a story I covered once in the Netherlands. It was about three young Irish men. Two of them were from Tipperary, one was from Clare. And they went and they got caught up in a drug situation. And um, fellas came in and just cut them up into little pieces and burned their bodies. And I remember their families coming over. So those kind of situations are just horrendously difficult. You remember Shoot Magazine all those years ago? Did you ever, did you collect Shoot Magazine? Did you buy Shoot Magazine? Yeah. Soccer Magazine? Yeah, we got, I'm older than you. Uh, yeah, slightly. Yeah, we but got. But there was always, you remember, there was always a, a, a focus on it. Was it called Player Focus or something on the second last page? Yes. And the second last question always fascinated me was, if you hadn't been a soccer player, what would you have been? Um, and I'll put the same question to you. If you hadn't gone on the journalism route, we nearly lost you to medicine, is that right? Uh, I was interested in, in doing medicine, yeah, in Summerhill. Um, mm. And I, it was quite chastening. I think we, we, don't, we don't give proper recognition to the role people who, who deal in healthcare, uh, to the difficult thing they have when they can't fix people, when people die. Uh, and the way how, if they get too close to people, um, that when a person dies, part of them yeah. dies with them. So I remember in Summerhill uh, this summer, there were people from the Wheelchair Association down, and they were staying in Summerhill, and there was entertainment on for them. And as volunteers, we were assigned to, um, to look after people. So I remember I was looking after this person, and they were going out for their tea, and I went back up to Kieran's Road for mine. And when I came back, they had taken a turn and died. Mm. And just the shock and the awareness of this is what doctors and nurses and radiographers and porters uh, have to deal with day in, day out. And I just didn't think I had the strength for it. So when the chance of getting into journalism came, I said, okay. uh, this sounds easier. And all these years later, looking back, if you, if you could change, if you wanted to change your career, what, what would it have been? I wouldn't change a day. Not at all? No. Oh, God, no. I have had a charm life, a brilliant life. Yeah. Not, not a day. Never better, I should say. Okay. Uh, that never better, and I should sort of mention it here, where it comes from. Yeah. Uh, first of all, it comes from the I think fact he's, that... I think he's here this afternoon, actually. Good. Um, we'll find out in a moment. When you wake up in the morning, there's the joy that you, there's another day. There was also the Albert Reynolds sort of tendency. Albert Reynolds said once, 
uh, on your worst day, put on your best clothes. And after the second or third person says to you, Jesus, you're looking well, uh, you'll, you'll start to feel it. Um, but all politics being local, uh, the person I associate with the phrase, never better, most of all, is one Martin Riley. Because uh, whenever you ask Martin, how are you, Martin? Never better. Uh, and I think the way he's it worked out is the people who want him to be doing well will say, Christ, it's great, Riley is in great form. And those who don't want him to be in great form will say, to hell, he's doing so well. So, uh, Martin, you have a role in the Never Better title. Uh, I'll throw it open to the audience, if that's all right, Tommy, for a few moments. Sure. I'm sure they've got far more interesting questions uh, to ask than I have and points to make. Anybody like to ask Tommy a question at this stage about anything? Because we haven't got the Brexit yet or Northern Ireland, and we'll get to that very, very shortly. Um, anybody for a question for Tommy? There's a lady this here. This lady here, three rows in. We'll give we'll you a, a microphone. We'll just get a microphone to you. Yeah. That's okay. This, ladies and gentlemen, is Eileen Buckley from Monaghan, the wife of Damien Collieri from Grattan Street, Sligo. Do I have a question? Um, Tommy, as Northern Edit Editor for RTE, you would have dealt with a lot of serious and dangerous times. Was your life ever threatened, or did you ever feel threatened? Um, it, there were times, uh, during riots in Belfast, uh, when the RTE stick, especially if it was in a loyalist area, it was dangerous. Um, and there were times when there were bullets fired in those situations. Uh, there was a time, Eileen, in uh, 1981 in Derry, when I went with this fellow called Noel McCartney from BBC Radio Foil, and I persuaded him that we'd go out to see what was happening, had the rioting calmed. And we were out in a place called Carn Hill. And um, this fella stopped us on the road. And I let down, I was driving. And um, he said, uh, you'll do a wee run for me. And I said, no, we can't, we're, you know, we're working. And he put a gun up to my head like that. And he says, you will do a wee run for me. So he had a sort of a half-baked plan in mind that we were going to go in and drive by the Strand Road police station and if there was some policeman available that he might fire a shot at him from the back of the car. Uh, so I said to him, we couldn't go doing that. We could get killed. No journalist has ever been killed in the Troubles. I don't know what organised... He was, I think he was from the INLA as opposed to the IRA because that was like INLA tendency in those times. Uh, and he looked over and he saw Noel McCartney and he recognised him and he told us to F off and he let us go. Um, and when we um, got back into uh, Great James's Street and I was getting out of the car, I had no legs. The adrenaline was gone. Um, <laughs> but I don't think I was scared as much as just excited by it or whatever. Uh, but apart from that, like, I never really felt afraid. Um, I... I thought that there were people of evil intent. Obviously, there were, but I think by the time I, I got there, uh, the second time around, um, it was great the way things had calmed. Uh, anybody else for a question? We, we come to Eric. Eric in a moment. Just before the, you, you, you forget or you fail to mention the uh, frightening incident in 1987. Somebody called to your house in the dark of night. Isn't that right, Tommy? Purporting to be from the IRA. Yeah, that was the toughest, my toughest time in journalism. I was given a, a document from the IRA about the travel plans of the British ambassador, Sir Nicholas Fenn. He was uh, going to that August weekend. He planned to travel to the home of Dermot Kinlan, a senior uh, uh, barrister. And uh, I had this story and uh, how the way I broke gave the story to RTE and the way it came out and the way the state came after me, trying to suggest that uh, it came from, um, that it didn't come from the IRA, that it yeah. came from a disgruntled member of the Garda Siakana who, uh, who was fed up that overtime was being cut. And um, there was a very nice superintendent in Ballyshannon at the time called John Courtney. He was a really, really 
honest, honorable man. And John got blamed that maybe some of his people might have given that to me, totally untrue. And um, he subsequently left the Gardaí over it. He had a great career, I think, in Ulster Bank in security afterwards. That was a tough time, and it very nearly broke. And there was a, a guard in this town. I'll tell you who it was, because uh, he should be acknowledged. It was Tom Staunton, Lord rest him. The late Tom Staunton, yeah. And Tom Staunton got a message to me to be careful that there were people listening to my phone and trying to find out had I any bad dogs around the place uh, from his own organisation. Uh, so that was very, very tough. And it took about five weeks for them to conclude that they yeah. were on the wrong trail. Uh, but um, we had a book launch in, in Trinity in Dublin. And uh, the Taoiseach came to it, and Leo Varadkar came to it, and Mary Lou MacDonald came to it, and lots of other people. But I was really glad that John Courtney, who's now in his 80s, was he there. came to that as well. Okay. That was the roughest time I had. Eric. This microphone. <laughs> Tommy and uh, Niall, thank you very much for giving us a good Sunday afternoon. I'm really enjoying it, and it's great. You know, I know Buddy quite well. But anyways, uh, uh, Tommy, you were talking about Roy Keane, but you did interview uh, view another. Uh, you went to the funeral of another legend, Sean Fallon. Now, Sean Fallon uh, came from my over to St. Anne's. He was born in number 35 St. Anne's. He was my first cousin. And his grandmother was Gorman as well. I want to let you know that. Now, uh, the question I want to ask you: Did you in, uh, did you ever meet Sean Fallon? Did you ever um, did you enjoy uh, doing the commentary when we doing his funeral? I know this is our things I, I I like to ask you because I never got the chance to ask you it before. Eric, what a what a wonderful question. I love Sean Fallon. Uh, I did the last interview with him. Uh, the weekend before he died. Uh, with Sligo Rovers, I had a role in getting hold uh, of the caps for Sean Fallon that he had won, but the FAI had never given them. And that last time I was with him, he had some of his grandchildren with him and they were wearing the caps. Uh, I filmed the eulogy at his funeral by Sir Alex Ferguson, who described how Sean had been such an influence on him. And um, one of the things I loved about Sean Fallon and admired about him was he was such a rounded person. He said, if you can't get on with somebody, just avoid them. That was his advice. And like he was of this town, he worked in a bakery here, he ran to the Holy Well, he scored goals against Dan O'Keefe playing Gaelic in the showgrounds. He went on to captain Celtic, and this is, this is where the local becomes so universal. The centre we have out in the showgrounds is called after him. Martin O'Neill came down to open it because of how much he admired him. And Sean Fallon, captain Celtic, in all those games against Rangers. But his father, your relation, John Fallon, the councillor, Fine Gael councillor, was a soldier in the First World War. And the park that's going to be opened by Tommy Higgins uh, and all those great people who are working on that project down opposite the sports centre, uh, my, my neighbours, the Hickeys involved in it, um, that is so much of Sligo, because that's the reconciliation of John Fallon's tradition being in the British Army and Sean Fallon, his son, going on to captain Glasgow Celtic. Uh, and I, I think it says, it says a lot about the nature of reconciliation that is at the heart of this town. And for me, he was such a magnificent ambassador. Um, you don't seem convinced, Tommy, that we may see a United Ireland in our lifetime, as in our generation. Uh, you say in your book that a 10-year timeline of acceptance, a hope for by Mary Lou MacDonald is unlikely. Why do you say that? Um, I'm not against United Ireland um, at all. Um, in recent years, I've been so glad that our government is in Dublin. I'd hate to have had Boris Johnson as my Prime Minister, or Rishi Sunak, or whoever, well, we, we, Donald we'll Ducker, whoever they're going in to put moment. in. Uh, uh, but I'm really conscious of, um, I'm conscious of 
one million unionists, and you can't, they're human beings too, they're on this island, and we have to, I'd love to see an accommodation between us where we all get on together, and I think we were heading to that. I also think, like, I've reported on politics for a long, long time, yeah. and things take time. Like, look at the quality of the road from here to Enniskillen. Look at, say, the delay in getting the money, there's money for it, but it's nowhere near built, the road from Monaghan to uh, Ballygawley to Oma to Letterkenny. Uh, look at the difference. An example I give, Niall, is like, I'd say 40, 50% of the people here have got VHI or some other private health insurance. The figure in Northern Ireland is three or four. Yeah. So how do you... So, so these are the practical issues which you yeah, think are going and, to, to uh, delay this process. And I think, the, I think the timing, like it's a great time to be alive because I think the timing is, is fantastic in that Sinn Féin have the IRA... I, I don't believe in this stuff about, you know, men in the felons club and, you know, guys in the back. I think that's over. Yeah. I think Sinn Féin is a political project now. And I think the next stage in our politics is whether Sinn Féin gets a role in government, whether it can be the largest party a second time and not get into government. But I think if and when the time arrives when Sinn Féin have a role in government, there'll be a discovery that power is such a difficult thing to exercise. Yeah. Uh, and I'm happy that it's going to happen. These things are happening in a, an incremental way. Mm. And I'm... But I'd, not within I'd, 10 years. I'd worry that there's a capacity for protest for people to mount barricades and so on. I don't think the shooting and killing will ever restart. But we have to be mindful uh, mm. of unionism and that it does not feel completely abandoned. Uh, you came into close contact, obviously, with many of the most high-profile politicians in the north in this country. Um, Paisley, McGuinness, Trimble, Gerry Adams, many more, Arlene Foster. You seem to get on with them all on a personal level. Or you sort of understood where they were at and where they were coming from? Well, it's like you um, in Ocean. Um, there aren't 20 people who say, I won't take a call from that gobshite Delaney, you know? <laughs> oh, I don't know uh, about that. You have to get on with people. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's business, you know? That's how it works. Uh, that's the way it has to be. And, uh, like, it was, uh, it was fascinating for me to actually get to, try to get to understand unionists. I had a, yeah. had a, had a fantastic time with Ian Paisley once. This is true. Uh, he came down to Banada after he retired. Yeah, he did. And he opened that peace park, um, or that, that part of the peace park that's dedicated to him. And he was inside in Tubra Curry, and he stayed in Curry, and he had not just one, but he had two generations of Paisleys with him. And I remember him saying to me that he felt at as at home in Tubra Curry as he did in Cullybacky. That's true. Okay. Uh, very briefly, uh, Brexit, the story that keeps on giving, we haven't time to go into much detail, but have you got the ins has, has Boris got the 100 MPs yet? Do you know? What are you hearing? Yeah. Yeah. I it can't happen, Tommy. Surely it can't. Well, if he does manage uh, to, to get in there ahead of Sunak, I think it'll be a disaster for him personally. Do you? Yeah. Yeah. So he's not a changed man. He, he flew back no, it, in it's, economy it, class, did he like, not, from the like Caribbean he, there a few days ago? Uh, the, Lord, the Lord himself wouldn't be able to, to fix the problems that yeah. are there. Just, you know, the, you know, the way he's going to be scrutinised. But know, for those who don't know, you came across Boris many, many years ago. He was the was a European correspondent for the Daily Telegraph. Yeah, he had just started with the Telegraph. So it was during the Brussels years. I, I, I knew him well in the press room. Um, and yeah. got on well with them. And we had a great reunion when he came across for the DUP party conference. Um, yeah, you remembered you, he did. He, well, when I throw questions, he'd always say, my friend Tommy, with that sort of smirk that goes <laughs> with Boris, and hoping that there wouldn't be a haymaker come out. He wouldn't answer it okay. anyway, you know? Uh, you're not a Sunak fan either then, are you? From what uh, well, I just think it's a really difficult job. I think, yeah. I think they're not prepared to acknowledge the folly that Brexit is proving to be for them. Okay. Uh, I think it's, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting in a way, Niall. Brexit has real difficulties for us when the British economy, says is unstable at the moment. But on the other hand, we are now the English-speaking part of the European Union. 
uh, we are the place that has corporation tax yeah. at half the rate of the UK. So, like, we're set fair. This European adventure, we had a completely different background. We were trying to get out from the island behind the, uh, the bigger island. Britain was looking for an empire that's no longer there. So yeah. we had different, I suppose, priorities. But I think Europe has served us well, whereas the British couldn't settle in it. Coming to the end of our, our uh, chat, Tommy, which you've enjoyed, but uh, just a final question. Your last chapter in the book is called uh, Bonus Years, and it's a beautiful, reflective piece. Um, wh what do you mean by bonus years? Is it, is it a reference to your long, your year-long, years-long battle with cancer? Did you not expect to be around uh, at this stage in your life or not? No, I, I didn't. Um, and, you know, the... The sums, they weren't really pointing in that direction. Uh, the condition I have is a pretty serious one, and it's, it's kind of a miraculous that I'm still here. And I wanted to get a, to give a sense of that gratitude. Another part of the bonus is that I'm home. Yeah. Um, that's really important to me. Like, for whatever energies I have for the next while, I want to spend time doing things in Sligo. I want to do yeah, things and, for and the you know, it was, It's been remiss of me not to mention Kira, your wife, because she has been more than supportive well, uh, from a very early stage in your career. Well, And that's very clear in the book as well, isn't it? That's the most important part of it. Um, like when you say, uh, happy that you're still alive, bonus years. Like, we have two adult children, you know, Moya's 29, Joe's 26, uh, and I've lived to see them, you know, grow up into adults, and um, I think uh, Kira's beginning to get a sense of um, how sincere that belief of the, the four of us in, in the unit are. And um, like, this is as good as it gets to be back with a bit of energy in my hometown, uh, with the people I love, and among my own. Um, the book is called Never Better, My Life in Our Times, and it is quite a fantastic read, Tommy, I can tell you, and, and I'm, I'm being genuine about that. Um, Tommy Gorman, journalist, uh, broadcaster, author, and Freeman of Sligo, of course, as well, which you forgot to mention. It's a real privilege to be asked to interview you today, Tommy. Um, continue good wishes to you and to Kira, to Joe and to Moya, and to, indeed to all your family who are here today and elsewhere. And may those bonus years continue long into the future. Thank you, and I Thanks hope you enjoyed the, the day. I'll be shot. Hey. Hey. Oh, one, two. Are you, are, you, are you under pressure now? You're. Yeah, okay.